0: Amen. All right, we're there in Job, chapter number 38. And uh, we have been walking through the book of Job on Wednesday nights, taking one chapter uh, a week. And we have been faithful and going through this book. It's been difficult at times when we've got uh, Job's three friends speaking in the last six weeks having Elihu speak. But we are now getting into the best part of the book of Job. And this is, of course, when God speaks. And uh, this is an interesting chapter. There's a lot to deal with in this chapter. It's a long chapter, forty one verses, And uh, God just asks this series of questions. And uh, I, w- I want to deal with some stuff in the introduction. Then I want to. The, the first seven verses are kind of controversial verses, so we're going to spend some time dealing with that. And we're going to try to go through the rest of it as quickly as we can and make an application at the end. But of course, in this chapter, God shows up and speaks to Job out of the whirlwind, and uh, he, he begins to speak. Now, the first thing I want you to notice in this passage, and, and, and of course, uh, we're going to be looking at a lot of different passages tonight. It's Bible study night, so I hope you came ready. To uh, study the Bible, but the, the the first thing I want you to notice is that God, how God deals with Job and with Elihu. Now we spent the last six weeks looking at Elihu, and we've realized that Elihu is a clown. Elihu does not know what he's talking about. Elihu says a lot of wrong things, makes false assumptions, makes all sorts of false accusations, and the people who like to defend Elihu will often bring up the fact that at the end of the book of Job. God deals with Job's three friends, but God never deals with Elihu. Is the argument that's made? And I would make the argument that God does deal with Elihu. He deals with him right here. Now, most people agree that the way that the chapter ends for Elihu, and the way that uh, that that God begins to speak, Elihu was definitely interrupted. He did not come to an end. God interrupted him. In fact, if you if you remember the last time we were in the book of Job, we we talked about the fact that as Elihu is speaking, it's evident from the passage, from the text, that as he's speaking, there is this, for, this storm forming around him, and God is, is moving towards them, and of course, he shows up in verse number one. The Bible says, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Now I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, God uh, interrupts Elihu. But when God begins to speak, I want you to notice, who does God address in verse 1? It says, And the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said. Who is God speaking to? He is speaking to Job. The Lord answered Job. Now, it's important for you to understand that God is speaking to Job in this chapter, and here's why. Because in verse 2, God says this, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words? without knowledge. Now, some people will uh, say, well, this is God speaking to Job. Who is this? But the word this is not a word that would be used if God was referring to Job. In fact, the word this is defined as um, or is used to identify a specific person or thing. This is according to the dictionary. Used to identify a specific person or thing close at hand or or being indicated. When when God says in verse 2, who is this? He's not talking to Job. This is not a reference to Job, the person that uh, God, the speaker, is speaking to. But instead, this is referring to someone that God, the speaker, is speaking about to Job, the one that God is speaking to. Do you understand what I'm saying? He He, he doesn't say, who art thou? He didn't say, who do you think you are, Job? Who art thou that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? No, the Lord answered Job. God is, ask, is talking to Job, and God says to Job, who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? So when God says, who is this, who's he referring to? Well, there's been one blowhard that's been talking for the last six chapters, that's uh, you know uh, a specific person that's close to hand. So when people say, "Well, God never rebukes Elihu," I would uh, disagree and say God rebukes him right here. Amen. In fact, God rebukes rebukes him in the most insulting way that he could. Instead of addressing Elihu, God doesn't even address Elihu. He looks at Job and he says, "Who's this clown?" Who's this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Now I want you to notice, notice the transition in verse 3, But when God now begins to speak to Job, he says, Gird up now thy loins like a man. Know the difference between this and thy. He says, who's this? Who's this guy? Who's this guy that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Then he tells Job, gird up now thy loins like a man. The word thy is an archaic term uh which today we would say the word your this is God addressing Job the 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 definition of the word thy from the dictionary is belonging to or associated with the person or people that the speaker is addressing. So I want you to notice in verse two it's this It's God speaking to Job about somebody else, Elihu, who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge. In verse 3, God is speaking to Job, gird up now thy loins like a man. So does the Bible tell us what God thinks about Elihu? Well, he said about him, who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge. God says, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He gives a lot of counsel, but he does it without knowledge. So we see that God dismisses Elihu. He interrupts Elihu. It's clear from the end of chapter 36 and all of chapter 37 that as Elihu is speaking and ranting, this storm is forming around him. God interrupts him and, and shows up in this whirlwind. And then God, speaking to Job, says, Who is this that darkness counsel by words without knowledge? And then I want you to notice, not only do we see how God deals with Elihu, but we see how God deals with Job. Notice again, verse 3. Gird up now thy loins like a man. Now, those kind of sound like fighting words. God says, Hey, Job, man up. Gird up now thy loins like a man. Now, notice what, notice what God says to Job. He says, For I this is God speaking, the Lord, will demand of thee, and answer thou me. God says to Job, hey Job, first of all, who's this clown? Who's this guy that darkeneth counsel of words without knowledge? Then he says to Job, gird up thy loins like a man. He says, I'm going to demand of thee. I'm going to ask you, ask some questions of thee, and answer thou me. Now, Sometimes people will ask this question, they'll say, and, and go, go with me to Job 23 if you would. You're there in Job 38, that's our text for tonight, but go back to Job 23. People will say, well, why is it that it seems like God is so hostile towards uh, Job, and remember, Job is the hero of the story. Job has won the challenge. If you remember all the way back from um, Job chapter 1 and chapter 2, this challenge has been made. Uh, Satan said to God, you know, if you just take away from Job, if you take away, he serves you because of all his blessings. If you take them all away, he will curse you to your face. Job never did that. Job never cursed God, and Job never charged God foolishly. He never did any of those things. He never quit on God. He never said it's not worth uh, serving God, so he won. However, Job did do some things in this book that were wrong. He never cursed God. He never charged God foolishly. You say, but what did Job do that was wrong? Well, a couple of things he did that were wrong were he uh, questioned God, and he accused God. Now, Job 23, verse 3. We're going to deal more with that in next week's sermon, but let me just remind you. Job 23, and verse 3. This is Job speaking. And notice what he says. He says, Oh, that I knew where I might find him. The him there is referring to God in the context. That I might come even to his seat. The word seat there is referring to like a judgment seat. Job is saying, If I knew where to find God, I would go to where He is. I would enter into His courtroom. I would enter into His judgment seat. What would you do there, Job? Verse 4. I would order my cause before Him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would explain to God you know, why you're wrong, and why that you shouldn't be doing this, and why, and I would ask these questions, notice verse 5, he says, I would know the words which he would answer me, and understand what he would say unto me, he said, if I could uh, find God, if I could walk into the throne of God, I would ask God to answer these questions, and we, what we find, and look, we're not beating up on Job, Job, Job never cursed God, and he never charged God foolishly, praise the Lord for that, I don't know that any of us would be faithful like Job was faithful. I'm not beating up on him for questioning God, but he questions God and he says, If I could, if I could get a hold of God, I would ask him some questions. He's frustrated that he doesn't understand. And and if we've been studying the book of Job, that's what we've learned. He's not upset that God took everything away from him, but he just doesn't understand why. Why God. And he has these questions. And he's frustrated that he can't. And I just showed you one example. We could go through a lot of them, and I don't have the time to do it tonight. But he's asking these questions. He wants these answers. He wants an explanation. He wants God to explain this to him. What's interesting is that when God shows up, God does not answer any of his questions. God says, I got a question for you. Actually, I have a lot of questions for you. Now it's interesting because in the New Testament you find that people would walk up to Jesus and say, you know, ask us, we will answer this question, and they, the Bible tells us they would do it uh, uh, with 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 a different agenda, with an agenda to try to catch him in his words. And Jesus would often say, "Sure, I'll answer your question after you answer my question." And this is what God is doing. God shows up and he says, "Hey, Job, I heard you wanted to talk. Hey, Job, I heard you've been looking for me. Hey, Job." I heard you want to have a face-to-face talk, so gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. God begins to ask a series of questions. Now, as far as I can tell, God asks 40 questions in this chapter. In the next chapter, he asks another 19 questions, I believe. Now, a lot of the questions are repetitive, and they're kind of just rephrasing, the same thing that he's already saying, but there's 40 questions, but uh, what I came up with was 26 unique question categories. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time in verses 4 through 7, because those are kind of the controversial uh, uh, verses, but then we're going to fly through these questions, and I'm going to point out some things for you in regards to these questions, but let's just knock this out of the way, verses 4 through 7, because it's uh, it's important. Verse 4. Notice the first question. He says, where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Now, the question is this. Where were you when I created the earth? The the term there, laid the foundations of the earth, is a reference to creation. He says, where were you? Because remember, Job says, I've got some questions for God. God shows up and says, I've got some questions for you. Good up thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee. And answer thou me. So God begins with this question. He says, where were you when I created the earth? Where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Then he says, declare, if thou hast understanding. He said, if if, if you know, give me the answer. Then he says this in verse 5. Who hath laid the measure thereof? Now, the word thereof is referring back to the foundations of the earth. He's, he's asking, who, lay, who hath laid the measure thereof, if thou knowest? Here's what he's asking. He's saying, who put the ruler down? Who laid down the ruler to when, when, when we laid down and measured the foundations of the earth? Who did that, Job? Then he asks this question in verse 5. Or, who hath stretched the line upon it? The word it there, again, is referring to the same thing that the word thereof is referring to. It's referring to the foundations of the earth. In verse 5, he says, who laid the measure thereof. That's kind of like laying down a tape measure or a ruler. Then in verse, uh, at the second part of verse 5, he says, or who had stretched the line upon it. That's more like a measuring tape. And he's asking, who stretched the measuring tape around the earth? He says in verse 6, whereupon, that word means on where or on which are the foundations thereof fastened? He says, where are the foundations placed or fixed He he asks these questions. I want you to notice, in verse 4, he has one question. In verse 5, he has two questions. And in verse 6, he has two questions. We haven't got to the second one yet, but at the beginning of verse 6, he asks another question. All of these questions all have to do with the foundation of the earth. Where was thou when I laid the foundation of the earth? Who hath laid the measure thereof? Uh, Who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof? All of that has to do with the foundations of the earth, and all of that has to do with creation. Creation is what's being referred to. The week of creation, when God created the heavens and the earth, is all referring to the foundations of the earth. Then God says this, verse 6, whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened, right? We saw that, that question, and I want you to notice. You see the question mark? That, the question mark serves as a punctuation. Sentence over. Here's the question, whereupon are the foundations that are fastened, done. Then he says, or, now he's going to ask a new question. Or who laid the cornerstone thereof when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Question mark Do you see that? The next question begins in the middle of verse six and goes to the end of verse seven. Here's the question. Who laid the cornerstone thereof? Semicolon. Here's some information about the laying the cornerstone thereof when the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy. Now here's what the dispensationalists will take this passage and, and teach heresy. They'll say, see, God is referring to the morning stars singing and the sons of God shouting for joy and this all happened at the time of creation because it happened when the foundations of the earth so therefore the sons of God must be the angels that's what dispensationalists will teach and I'm here to tell you that's completely wrong that is heresy and, of course, they have to believe that because they like to believe all sorts of weird and crazy things. And they have to say that the sons of God are angels in Genesis 6, earlier in the book of Job, in different places. But I want you to notice, that, and, and they'll say, because, look, the sons of God shouted for joy. The morning stars sang together when God laid the foundations of the earth. Here's the problem with that. That's not what it says. It doesn't say that the sons of God shouted for joy or that the morning stars sang together when God laid the foundations of the earth or when He laid the measure thereof or when He stretched the line upon it or when He uh, uh, fastened the foundation. Those are all uh, a series of questions all having to do with the foundation, question mark, ended Or, new question, who laid the cornerstone thereof when the morning stars sing together and when is the implication all the sons of God shouted for joy. So when did the morning stars sing together and when did the sons of God shout for joy? When he laid the foundations of the earth? No. When? When he laid the cornerstone thereof. Do you understand? So they'll try to connect it to, see, the sons of God. We're shouting for joy at the creation of the earth. That's not what it says. He has this question. Who put down? Who laid down or set in position the cornerstone? Uh, 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 the cornerstone is a stone that forms the base of a corner or a building. The primary stone representing uh, the starting place of construction on the earth when the morning stars sang and the sons of God shouted. Uh, they'll say, see, he they, 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 shout, they shouted. The morning stars sang together. The sons of God shouted for joy during the foundation of the earth. But that's not what it says. It says that they shouted... The morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy when he laid the cornerstone thereof. That's when they shouted. That's when the morning stars sang together. So let's just real quickly uh, run some verses. Go to Revelation, if you would. Revelation chapter 12. Last book in the New Testament should be fairly easy to find. Revelation chapter 12. Let's talk about some of these terms. The term morning star. Now, the term morning star, in my opinion, is a reference to a being in a celestial or glorified body. And I will agree that it is probably referring to angels. Now, let me just give you some thoughts. Jesus himself is referred to as the bright and morning star. Not just a morning star, but the bright and morning star, the biggest, the brightest morning star. The Bible says in the book of Daniels that you and I will one day receive glorified bodies and depending on how many souls we win or how active we are in the winning and reaching of the uh, people with the gospel, that we will shine as the firmament of heaven and as the stars. Referring to the fact that our glorified bodies will shine like stars. So when you see this phrase stars, I believe it is a reference to a a being that has a celestial or a glorified body. The bright and morning star referring to Jesus. Us in our glorified bodies could be referred to as shining as stars. Lucifer, before his fall in heaven, was referred to as the son of the morning, Isaiah 14, 12. And angels... Are sometimes referred to as stars. Let me give you an example. Revelation 12, look at verse 3. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon. The great red dragon, and I'm not going to take the time to, you can study that on your own, but that's Satan. It's very clear from the book of Revelation that's Satan having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head, and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven. Now here, this is an allegory. It's, it's, it's a, it's an, uh, uh, the, we're, we're being told this story, uh, with these pictures of a dragon and the stars. But notice it says, and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered and to devour her child as soon as it was born. So the dragon's tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven. What is that referring to? It's referring to the fact that he took the third of the angels, which became the fallen angels, and notice they're referred to as stars. So it's very well may be that the morning stars in Job 38 is a reference to angels. I don't have a problem with that. However, the term sons of God, in order to say, well, the the sons of God are referring to angels, that would contradict other scriptures and other passages of scripture, because in the Bible, the sons of God only ever refers to one group of people, saved people, not angels. Go to Hebrews, if you would, Hebrews chapter number one, Hebrews chapter number one, You're there in Revelation, just go backwards. You have Jude, 3rd, 2nd, and 1st John, 2nd, and 1st Peter, James, Hebrews. Could you get me a towel from there? Hebrews chapter 1, look at verse 4. Now, Hebrews chapter 1 just completely proves the point that God never, thank you very much, the the Bible never refers to uh, uh, angels as the sons of God. Hebrews 1, look at verse 4, notice what it says being made so much better than the angels. Now, the context, I won't take the time to go through it. You can read verses 1 through 3. It's referring to Jesus. The person who was better than the angels is referring to Jesus. As he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Look at verse 5, 4. You see the word for there? The word for means because, or here's how, here's why Jesus is so much better than the angels. Why is Jesus so much better than the angels? Here's why. For Unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Here's the point. Jesus is so much better than the angels because God, the Father, never looked at an angel and said, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again... Here's another phrase. Here's another thing that God never said to the angels. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringing the first begotten into the world, he said, let all the angels of God worship him. So he said, here's what he said. He says, Jesus is better than the angels because God the Father never said to an angel, for unto which of the angels said he at any time now, my son this day, have I begotten thee? And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And then he also says, and when the first begotten, came into the world god the father said to the angels let all the angels of god worship him right. so the term son of god is never referred to according to hebrews 1 an angel is never referred to as a son of god right. now who is referred to as a son of god you're there in hebrews go to first john if you would just go past james first second peter john we got a lot of passages to look at it turns out when god speaks for an entire chapter there's just a lot to look at first right. john chapter 3 Look at verse 1. Now, obviously, Jesus is the Son of God. Amen. But through Jesus, you and I are also sons of God. Right. First John 3, 1 John 3.1, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we, believers, should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not because it knew Him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So look, in the Bible, the only group, other than Jesus, of course, the only group that is ever called the sons of God is referring to people that are saved. It's is, is referring to believers. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. The sons of God are the uh, believers. Uh, so you say, well, what, what's going on in Job 38 then? Who are the sons of God? They're, they're believers in heaven. Say so they're, they're Old Testament saints, you know, uh, up there in heaven during creation? No, that's not what it says. The part about creation is the foundations of the earth. They shouted for joy when he laid the cornerstone thereof. You say, well, was that not creation? No, it wasn't. Go, go to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's talk about the term cornerstone. And now we can preach a whole sermon on the term cornerstone. I'm not going to do it tonight, but let me just give you uh, something to consider. While you turn there, let me read to you from Ephesians. Ephesians 2.20 says this, And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Amen. The Bible clearly teaches that Jesus... Jesus Christ himself, Paul said, being the chief cornerstone. Now, what's a cornerstone? It is a rock upon which the weight of the entire structure rests. Also, a stone representing the starting place in the construction of a monumental building. When we, when you talk about masonry and you talk about building uh, a building made out of stones, you would lay down the cornerstone, which would represent the beginning of the building, the corner of the building. You would build from there, and it's also it was important that it was a, a, a laid right, that it was strong, that there was no defects with it, because it would carry the uh, strength of the weight of the entire structure. Jesus referred to as the cornerstone because our, our whole salvation rests upon him. Amen. He's the rock of foundation. He's the, he's the rock on which we stand. Amen. And he's also the first begotten of the dead. He's the first. He's the first uh, among many uh, brethren. 1 Peter chapter 2, look at verse 6. Wherefore also... It is contained in the scriptures, First Peter chapter 2, verse 6. Behold, I lay in Sion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him. Believeth on who? The chief cornerstone. Who's that? Jesus. Amen. Shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he, the chief cornerstone, Jesus, is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, Notice these words. The stone which the builders disallowed. The same is made the head of the corner. Amen. I won't take the time to go through all the passages, but when you study out this idea of the cornerstone, Matthew 21, 42, Mark 12, 10, Luke 20, 17, there's always this idea that the stone which the builders rejected is become the head of the corner. In Acts 4, 11, it says, The stone which was set at naught. The Bible tells us that the builders disallowed, did not allow it, did not want it. The same is made the head of the corner. What is all that referring to? It's referring to the fact that he came into his own and his own received him not. That the Jews rejected Christ. They they disallowed him. They rejected him. They did not want him. They crucified him. But at the resurrection, the stone which the builders rejected was made the head of the corner. what, What is the reference to... Becoming the chief cornerstone, it is a reference to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The re- the rejection of Christ, the, the death of Christ, his resurrection, he was set, he became the one on whom all our faith is founded upon. He is the foundation, he is the rock, and he is the first. Right. The first begotten of the dead, the first among many brethren. He's the chief cornerstone. So you say, well, what, what is... Uh, Job 38, go to John, just real quickly, John chapter 8. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John chapter 8. When the morning stars sang together, okay, that's the angels, they were singing, and the sons of God shouted for joy. When were the, the sons of God shout for joy? When he laid the cornerstone there up. Look, when when Jesus died and resurrected, when he resurrected, the Bible says, the morning stars and the sons of God, the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy in heaven. The sons of God is referring to the Old Testament saints. They, you say, I don't know about that. I went to dispensational church and they told me that uh, the Old Testament saints were in the nice part of hell called paradise and, you know, Jesus had to go down there and beat up the devil and take them out and all these things. Look, dispensationalists will make good sci-fi movies, but they don't uh, have good doctrine. You say, so you're saying that the sons of God is talking about people that were saved in heaven and the chief, they, they shouted for joy when Jesus became the chief cornerstone, a reference to his rejection And resurrection. Well, look, even Jesus himself said, Matthew 8:56, are you there? Your father Abraham, John 8:56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Jesus speaking to the Jews, he says, He says, Look, your father Abraham. When he saw my day, when he saw me come into the earth, when he saw me born of a virgin, when he saw my day, he rejoiced and was glad. Why? Because the sons of God shouted for joy. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. What is the chief cornerstone referring to? It's referring to the rejection and resurrection of Christ. When... Did the sons of God shout for joy? When did the morning stars sing together? They did it according to Job thirty-eight six and seven. Who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. When did they do those things? When the morning, when the chief cornerstone, when the cornerstone was laid, not when the foundation of the earth was laid. It didn't happen at creation. It happened. 4,000 years later, at the rejection and resurrection of Christ. Right. Now go, go back to Job 38 and look at verse 8. Now we need to deal with that because there's a lot of just heresy that comes out of those verses and a lot of people like to use those verses to preach heresy. But that's not the point of this passage, this chapter. The point of this chapter is just God asking these questions of Job. And God, you know, he asks these awesome questions. Let's just try to run through these questions real quickly. And then I'll make an application at the end. Look at verse 8. Or, he says, who shut up the sea with doors when it break forth? As if, you see the words as if there? That's a simile. As if it had issued out of the womb. Here's what he's saying. He says, who shut up the doors of the sea, the ocean, when it tries to break forth like a woman whose water breaks when it had issued out of the womb? He says in verse 9, he says, when I, then he answers the question, when I, he says, God answered the question here of who? He says, when I made the clouds, the garments thereof, referring to the sea, and thick darkness, the swaddling bands for it, referring to the sea, he says, the, 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 the sea is clothed with this long darkness. It, it, it's, he, he said, I, I made a garment of the clouds. Notice verse 10, and break up. The word break up means to separate. For, for it, my decreed place and set bars and doors. My decreed place is referring to, the, he said, I chose a place where I broke it up. He said, I set bars and doors. What does that mean? It means that he, he used something to block. To block what? The ocean, the sea from gushing out. He says, who shut up the sea with the doors when it breaketh forth? Look at verse 11. And said, hitherto, God's saying, who said to the ocean, to the sea, hitherto shalt thou come, but no further, and here shall our proud waves be stayed. The word stayed means to stop or halt. Here's what God's asking. He's asking Job. Job, have you ever wondered what makes the ocean stop where the ocean stops? Have you ever wondered why the water doesn't just gush into the earth? Who, he says, Who? Break up for it, my decreed place. Who set the bars in the door? Who shut up the sea with the doors? Who said to the ocean, Hitherto shalt thou come, but no further, and here shalt our proud waves be stayed? He says, who stops the water from the sea, from the ocean, from simply gushing out unto the earth? And Job would say, I don't know. <laughs> and now we know, we know that the reason that the ocean stays where it stays is because of gravitational pull. We know that it is the gravitational pull of our universe that keeps the ocean from just over uh, uh, coming into uh, the earth. But then we'd ask this question, well, who created gravity? Look at verse 12. Here's another question. Has thou commanded the morning since thy days or caused the day spring to know his place? The word dayspring means dawn or daybreak. He says, Job, have you ever commanded the sun to rise? Have, has thou commanded the morning since thy days? You ever told, you ever decide, oh, let, it be, let's, let it be morning now. Look at verse 13. That it, the it that is referring to the dawn of the daybreak, might take hold of the ends of the earth, that the wicked might be shaken out of it. And he's talking about the fact that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And when the sun comes up, he he makes the wicked to be shaken out of it. It is turned as clay to seal, and they they stand as a garment. And from the wicked, their light is withholden, and the high arms shall be broken. Here's the question he's asking. He's saying, have you commanded the sunrise or caused the dawn to happen? No, I can only imagine. Job. Job's been saying, right, because they've been having this conversation, 30 some odd chapters, and Job's been saying, if I could get a hold of God, I would ask him a question. You know, and people, people talk like this. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God why he did this, and why he did that, and why he allowed this, and why he, he, he didn't allow that, and, and, and these things. And, and God shows up and says, okay, Job, i got some questions for you. Where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? Where, where were you? When, when I put all this into, in, into motion. He said, who, who stops the ocean and tells it to not go any further? Look at verse 16. Has thou entered into the springs of the sea? He says, Job, have you gone into the springs that are in the ocean, the springs that are in the sea? By the way, we believe that Job lived probably around the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob either at the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or sometime between Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and Moses, during that time frame. That, that would put him at about 4,000 years ago. 4,000 years ago, God showed up in a whirlwind and asked Job, Has thou entered into the springs of the sea? And Job's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Let me read to you a little excerpt from... Uh, from USGS.gov. Here's what they have to say. The government has to say about the springs of the sea. In 1977, some of you were alive in 1977. In 1977, scientists discovered hot springs at a depth of 2.5 kilometers on the Galapagos Rift of the coast of, uh, uh, of Ecuador. In 1977, scientists found that there were springs in the sea. But 4,000 years ago, God told Job, Has thou entered into the springs of the sea? Amen. Amen. Let me tell something. Science is always catching up to the Bible. Look at verse 16. Has thou entered into the springs of the sea? Or has thou walked in the search of the depth? God says, have you ever walked in the depths of the sea to find out, to search out how deep it is? He's saying, Job, do you know how deep the ocean is? Look at verse 17. Have the gates of death been opened unto thee? Or has thou seen the doors of the shadow of death? He he says, Job, have you ever looked into death or looked on the other side of death? Job, do you understand what happens after death? Or do you understand the afterlife? Have the gates of death been opened unto thee? Or has thou seen the doors of the shadow of death? Says this in verse eighteen: Has thou perceived? The word "perceived" means to recognize or become aware of. Has thou perceived the breadth of the earth? The word "breadth" means the width or the wideness. He says, "Declare if thou knowest it all." He's asking, "Do you know how wide the earth is?" Now today we know that the diameter of the earth is seven thousand nine hundred seventeen miles. But he asks Job. He says, "Has thou perceived the breadth of the earth?" Verse nineteen. He says. Where is the way that light dwelleth? Now, here's what's interesting. According to an article from Nova, the notion that light has a particular speed and that the speed is measurable is relatively new. Prior to the 17th century, we live in the 21st century, prior to the 17th century, most natural philosophers assumed light traveled instantaneously meaning it doesn't travel at all. Simply when it shows up, it's everywhere. Galileo, which lived in, uh, died in 1642, was one of the first to test this notion, which he did with the help of an assistant and two shuttered lanterns. It goes on to talk about many other scientists improved upon Galileo's work by devising ingenious new methods for measuring the speed of light. The results fell between 20,000 kilometers per second, recorded in 1675. 1675, scientists figured out that light travels. 4,000 years ago, God showed up in a whirlwind and said to Job, where is the way where light dwelleth? God understood the concept that light travels. God says to Job, where is the way that light dwelleth? And Job's thinking to himself, I didn't even know that light had a way in which it dwelled. I didn't even know that light moved. I just thought we turned the, the, the candle on and, and the light's there. And God's asking these questions. Look, God's asking these questions to Job to prove a point, but he, it's recorded in Scripture for all of us because even though we now know the diameter of the earth, even though we now know that there's fountains in the sea, even though we now know that light travels, you know what cannot be denied? God knew it way before we did. Amen. Scientists make these uh, discoveries, oh, the light, there's, there's, there's light, tr- light travels, and then people are like, oh, that's interesting, because that's what the Bible said. We always wonder what God meant by that. Turns out God was right. Look at verse 19, last part of verse 19, and as of for darkness, where is the place thereof? That thou shouldest take it to be bound thereof, that thou shouldest know the paths of the house thereof. He's asking, where is darkness? And again, the question is asked in a proper way. Since darkness is the absence of light, it does not travel. Light travels. Darkness is not a thing. It is a place. He says, and as for darkness, where is the place there? God asks the questions properly. Where is the way where light dwelleth? And as for darkness, where is the place thereof? Why? Because light travels, and darkness is just a place. It's just a place with the absence of light. Verse 21 knowest thou it He said do you know Joe I'm asking these questions do you know knowest thou it he says because I was born then because I was then born were you born when I created light were you born when I created gravity were you born when I laid the foundations of the earth were you born when I divided the sea were you born do you know these things were you born when I lay, when when, when I uh, put fountains in the sea? Knowest thou it because that was then born, or because the number of thy days is great? Do you know the answers to these questions because you're really old and because you're very wise, Job? Verse 22. Hast thou entered into the treasure of the snow? Now, it's interesting. People look at this and say, oh, God's just being poetic here. And of course, the book of Job is a poetic book, and I believe he is poetic. But he asks this question, has thou entered into the treasures of the snow? God says, snow is like a treasure that we, we store somewhere. Have you been to the treasure of the, of the snow? Here's the question he's asking. Have you been to where I store snow like a treasure? And Job would say, God, you, you, you uh, store snow like a treasure? He says, yeah, I reserve it for the day that I need it. He said, what, what is this? We have to do this with. This has to do with an understanding of the role that snow plays in the water cycles. Let me read to you from a little article called Snow in the Water Cycles. Snow, which is a frozen solid form of water, melts when it gets warmer than 32 degrees Fahrenheit. When the sun warms, the earth's snow begins to melt and turns into runoff. Runoff can seep into the ground where it is used to help plants grow. If the ground is already saturated, meaning it has enough water, the runoff will run off into lakes, streams, rivers, and other bodies of water. When it turns into a liquid as runoff, snow begins its trip through the water cycle. The water cycle is a series of steps water moves through as it travels from land and bodies of water into the atmosphere and eventually back to land and bodies of water. God says, I have snow stored up, up in the mountains, and when I need it, it will melt, and it will turn into liquid, and it will begin to run off. I store it there until I need it, and I use it to water the earth." He says, Job, have you ever been to where I store snow like treasure? (laughs) Job says, no. Verse 22. Last part of verse 22. Or has thou seen the treasures of hail? which I have reserved against the time of trouble, against the day of battle and war. And throughout the Bible, God used hail like a weapon during different wars and for judgment and things like that. Look at verse 24. By what way is light parted? He said, let's come back to this light thing. You didn't know that light traveled, that light had a way. But did you know this, Job, that light can be parted? By what way is light parted, God asked? Let me read to you from an article, Dispersion of Light by Prisms. The separation of visible light into its different colors is known as dispersion. It was mentioned in the light and color unit that each color is characteristic of a distinct wave frequency, and different frequencies of light wave will bend varying amounts upon the passage through a prism. It talks about the dispersion of light as more detailed, pondering reasons why different frequencies of light bend or refract. Different amounts when passing through the prism. God understood that light could be divided. It could be parted. He asked, Job, do you know how light is parted? Which scattereth the east wind upon the earth. Look at verse 25. He says, who hath divided a water course? The word water course means a natural channel carrying water. God says, Job, who decided... Who divided a water course for the overflowing of waters? Who decided the way that rivers and streams would flow to water the earth? You didn't know, and you've never been to where I store the snow, but do you know who divided the water course for the overflowing of waters? Do you know who decided where the rivers and the streams flow in the water cycle? Or Job, look at verse 25 a way for the lightning of thunder to cause it to rain on the earth where no man is on the wilderness wherein there is no man to satisfy the desolate and waste ground and to cause the bud of the tender herb to uh, herb to spring forth. Hath the rain a father or, have, uh, or who hath begotten the drops of dew? Here's what he's asking. He's asking, Job, can you make it rain? Who set in motion the water cycles of evaporation and condensation and precipitation that causes it to rain? He says, cause it to rain even in places where there's no human beings. God says, I take care of the plant life even where there's no uh, no one is uh, inhabiting the land. He says in verse 27, to, ta- to satisfy the desolate and waste ground and cause the bud of the tender herb to spring forth. He says, Do you make it lightning? Do you make it thunder? Do you make it rain? Do you know where the water gets stored? Do you know where I store the the, the snow up there and how I use the water courses to bring it down to you and to places you've never been, Job? Do you know? Verse 29. Out of whose womb came the ice and the hoary frost of heaven who have gendered it? The waters are hid as a stone and the face of the deep is frozen. God asks this question, who caused or produced ice and frost? He says in verse 31, Canst thou bind the sweet influences of Pleiades, or lose the bands of Orion? Canst thou bring forth Maseroth in his season, or canst thou guide Arcturus with his sons? Knowest thou the ordinances of heaven? Canst thou set the dominion thereof in the earth? Now God begins to ask about the stars, about the constellations. He says, can you fasten or secure? Can you bind? Or if you can't do that, can you release or free, loose? Or can you produce, bring forth, or show the way, lead, guide the constellations? That's what he's asking. Notice in verse 31, canst thou bind? Then he says, or loose. He says, canst thou bring forth? In verse 32, He says, canst thou guide, in verse 32. He says, can you bind the constellations? Can you loose the constellations? Can you bring forth the constellations? Can you guide the constellations? Job would say, no, 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 no. And God would say, what can you do? And God's referring here to these constellations. Let me just read to you a little uh, uh, snippet on that. Four of the great constellations that adorn the heavens are mentioned here. Number one, Pleiades, always prominent in the spring. Number two, Orion, which dominates the wintry skies. Number three, uh, Arcturus, prominent in the northern skies. And number four, the Maseroth, the meaning is obscure, but it's possibly the 12 zodiac signs or those that dominate the southern skies. And, you know, nobody knows, and I don't know if that's true. I'm sure somebody's going to send me something saying that that's all wrong. Significantly, the entire expanse of the starry heavens is brought into view here, the sky, summer, winter, and those of the northern and southern hemispheres. It's just interesting that God says, "Can you, control, you can't control anything on earth, can you control the things in heaven? Look at verse 3-4. Canst thou lift up thy voice to the clouds, that abundance of waters may cover thee? Can you, can you make it rain? Canst thou send lightnings? that they may go and say unto thee, here we are, can you make lightning, Job? Who hath put wisdom in the inward parts, or who hath given understanding to the heart? He says, who created the human mind and human intelligence, the faculty of memory, imagination, comprehension, the most intrigue, uh, intricate and, 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 and diverse matters? Who, who created these things, That the fact that you can think and reason and remember and ponder? Who hath put wisdom in the inward parts? Who hath given understanding to the heart? Verse 37, who can number the clouds in wisdom? He says, do you know how many clouds there are? Or who can stay the bottles of heaven when the dust groweth into hardness and the clouds cleave fast together? He says, "Can you You can't make it rain. Can you make it not rain? He, he's saying, who can stay, who can stop or hold the bottles of heaven when the dust groweth into hardness and the clouds cleave fast together. He says, can you make it stop raining or cause it to drought? He says, can you do these things, Joe? Now, I want you to notice that in verse 39, there's a shift. And for that reason, I'm not going to cover the last three verses of the chapter. I'm going to cover that next week. He says, "Will thou hunt the prey for the lion, or fill the appetite of the young lions when they couch in their dens and abide in the uh, covert to lie in wait? Who provided for the ravens his food when his young ones may uh, cry unto God? They wander for lack of meat." In Job 38:39, there's a transition from Job thirty-eight, one through 38 through verse 38. God has been asking questions referring to the explanation of creation. In Job 38, 39, and through the next chapter, he asks questions about the stewardship of the creatures upon the earth. So we'll cover that next week when we're in that chapter. But I want you to notice that God asks all these questions. And there's questions that Job doesn't know and Job couldn't know. There are questions that you and I don't know. Only you and I I only know them because we can look them up. And you say, what's the point of this? Go to Job 23. We're going to finish up right now. What's the point of all these questions? Well, remember, Job never charged God foolishly. Praise the Lord. Job never cursed God. Remember his wife said, curse God and die. Praise the Lord. Job won. Job won the challenge. Job came out the victor. But Job did make some mistakes. What were they? He questioned God, he complained against God, and he accused God. We're going to talk about some of those next week. But God begins with this idea. You got some questions, Job? I got some questions. You got some complaints, Job? What are your complaints, Job? Job is upset that he has a lot of unanswered questions. He has a lot of questions that God has not answered. Job is upset for the same reason that you and I often get upset with God. Because he allows us to lose someone. Because he takes something from us. Because he doesn't give us something that we feel we want or need. Because he didn't give us that baby. Because he didn't give us that marriage. Because he took away that job. Because he took away that relationship. And you and I would say the same thing that Job said. We would say, I'd be fine with it, God, if you just explain it. I'd be fine with it, God, if you would just answer my questions. And God says, Job, let me ask you a question. Where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? Where were you? Do you know where the fountains of the ocean are? Do you know how light travels? You know how gravity keeps the oceans from coming up upon the earth? You know all of these things. The truth is that there are a lot of questions that Job does not have an answer for. There are a lot of questions that Job doesn't know. Here, here's, here's the point, and I'll try to make it quickly and we'll, we'll finish up. Job is mad because he doesn't know. He doesn't know what God is doing. And God makes this point. Job, you don't know what I'm doing about a lot of things. You're mad because you don't know what I'm doing in your life. But let me remind you, Job. You don't know what I'm doing in a lot of areas. You don't know how I run the universe. You don't know how gravity works. You don't know where uh, how these things go, uh, go forth. See, if we do not question God with the running of the universe... If we don't worry about the unanswered questions when it comes to the solar system, the galaxies, the universe, the water cycles, the creatures upon this earth, the point that God is making is this. Joe, you're upset because you don't know what I'm doing, but there's lots of things you don't know that I'm doing. And if you can trust God with the universe, then maybe you can trust God with your life. If we do not question God with the running of the universe, if we don't worry about the unanswered questions about the universe, then maybe, just maybe, we can trust God with our lives even when he doesn't answer our questions. Because here's the interesting thing about God. He shows up, asks all these questions in this chapter, asks all sorts of questions in the next several chapters. He never answers Job's question. In fact, as far as we know, Job's questions never get answered, even when he gets restored. Job 23, verse 10. This is one of the verses where it's shining. You know, Job was up and down, and you and I would be the same way if we were going through what he was going through. But here Job is really right with God at this moment, and he says the right things. He says, but he, referring to God, he knoweth the way that I take when he hath tried me. I shall come forth as gold. Amen. Hey, look, let me tell you something. There's lots of things in your life and in my life that you, you, I don't know, you don't know. We don't know the answer to that question, we may never know the answer to that question, but sometimes it has to be enough that God knows. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Trump says, I don't know, but I know this. He knoweth the way that I take. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's putting me through, and when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. She said, what's the point of this chapter? The point of this chapter is this. When you question God, God, why are you doing this? Remember, God might ask, there's lots of things you don't know. You don't know why I'm doing this, but you don't know why I do a lot of things. Here's the point of the chapter, is that you and I are not qualified to be God. God. I mean, God, God, God brings Job into this interview and says, you don't think I'm doing a good job? You, you want an interview for the job? Okay. Do you know how this works? You know how this works? You know how I do this? You know why I do this? You know where this is? You know how this goes? And Job's like, nope, 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 nope. Well, then maybe I'll just keep the job of being God. Because I'm not qualified to be God. You're not qualified to be God. I don't understand what God does in a lot of areas. Not just my life. But I know this, that he knoweth the way that I take. So I can trust God. If the sun comes up, the moon goes down, the waters don't flood the earth, the animals all survive, the earth gets planted, irrigated, the water cycles work every day, all the time, then I can trust that God's doing the right thing in my life, and that God's doing the right thing in your life. Let's bow our heads and I word to prayer. Heavenly Father, Thank you, Lord, for this chapter. When God shows up, when God speaks, and he says, answer thou me. Lord, help us to be humble enough to understand that sometimes we say, sometimes we think, I'm going to ask God. When I get to heaven, I'm going to tell God. Help us remember when we get to heaven, none of it will matter. We just have to trust God and believe God. Understand that we're not qualified to be God. And understand that there are a lot of things we don't know that God is doing. And when one of those things happens to be in our life, then we should trust him with it. Help us to be like Job. Never curse God. Never charge God foolishly. But also help us to learn from Job. To be careful about questioning God. Because the truth is, there's lots of things we don't know. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen.